Suddenly, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud, a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Please pray with me. Dear Father in heaven, we ask you, as we do week by week, to be here with us this morning. And we trust that you have kept your promise and are here. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please sit. Outside of the geographic scope of the university that sits within it, uh, Tucson, Arizona is actually a pretty sleepy town. If you're around late at night and you're not actually on the campus of the school, it can be almost totally deserted, which is how it was one night late as I was driving home from Aya's apartment. I was living at that time on the far eastern edge of town, and Aya was living much closer to the school. And there I was at one of those late night red lights that seems to last forever. And there's no one in any direction. It seems like a cruel joke that you have to sit at this light. There's no one around, and you just have to sit there. It was probably something like 2 o'clock in the morning. This is in college when this sort of thing was possible. Um, <laughs> And the world was totally silent. Suddenly, though, I heard pounding, thumping music pulsing through the night as a car pulled up next to me at the red light. And I looked over and was mildly disconcerted to see that the car pumping out this incredibly loud music was a hearse at 2 o'clock in the morning on a deserted road in Tucson, Arizona. Strange, right? Late night, silent city, loud music, hearse. And so I peered into the cab, and the driver turned slowly to face me. And that's when I saw that he was wearing a hockey mask. Now, in a sporting goods store... Or on an ice rink, a hockey mask, there's nothing particularly scary about that. But on the driver of a hearse at 2 o'clock in the morning, if you saw that, you'd do what I did. Which was, of course, to stomp on the accelerator, red light or no red light, and get home as quickly as possible. A hockey mask out of place is terrifying. It's like another time I was outside my apartment. This is a different apartment, again very late at night, and I looked down the street, and several blocks down, an ice cream truck with no lights on, but with music playing, drove very slowly through an intersection. This is, again, a deserted street in the middle of the night, and you've got the entertainer plinking out of a dark ice cream truck. Ice cream trucks are awesome, but an ice cream truck out of place is terrifying. 
An awesome thing out of place is terrifying could well be the theme of this Transfiguration Sunday. Every year, on the last Sunday of Lent, we remember this event that occurs in the life of Jesus. And I want to give you a little context for when the Transfiguration happens. In Matthew 16, we've just read the story of Jesus telling his disciples what he's going to have to do to accomplish the salvation of the world. He's going to be tried, killed, and raised again. And Peter, who wants to save Jesus from having to endure these things, rebukes him, only to then be rebuked himself. You remember this, get behind me, Satan. And then Jesus tells the gathered disciples that whoever wants to come after him must take up his cross and follow because it's better to die for Jesus' sake than to live for one's own. And then, with a snap of the fingers, we get our reading abruptly from the beginning of Matthew 17. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So what's going on here? This is actually a hugely meaningful interaction. What we have is an incredibly symbolic gathering. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus are all together, symbolizing respectively the law, the prophets, and the gospel. Moses is the law, Elijah is the prophets, Jesus is the gospel. It's like the words of God personified. All the ways that the Lord speaks to his people by the law, through the prophets and in the Son, together, glorified. And you can totally understand Peter's suggestion, right? It's good for us to be here. Let me make three dwellings. Let's stay here forever, all of us together. Three God's words as one. This is where the story gets really interesting. Matthew, who we read from, doesn't actually record this, but in both Mark's and Luke's versions of this story found in chapter 9 of each of their Gospels, those authors insert here a little apology for Peter after his suggestion that he build three dwellings. He didn't know what he was saying, they write. It's like they're saying, you'll have to excuse my friend. He's a good guy. He just wasn't thinking straight. Don't hold it against him. But that's weird, right? Because what Peter says seems to make such sense. God's three ways of speaking, by the law, through the prophets, in the Son, all together. Let's bask in it. Let's live with them all together as equals. What's wrong with that? Well, I want to take you to a couple other pieces of Scripture just briefly uh, to find out what's going on here. The first thing to note, something I'm sure you all know, is that this is not the first time that Moses 
is on a mountaintop with God, is it? No, of course not. We just read it from Exodus 24. Moses is given the tablets of the law on Mount Sinai. And there's one phrase in that reading, part of a much longer whole, of course. There's one phrase that I think gives us a little clue about Peter's mistake here, about why Mark and Luke would apologize for his suggestion that he build three dwellings. Here's Exodus 24, 16 and 17. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Now the phrase that catches the ear is the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire. Devouring fire. It sounds terrifying. Like a hockey mask in a hearse in the middle of the night. And of course, the terrifying nature of this devouring fire is made more explicit a few chapters later in Exodus when Moses actually descends the mountain with the law, finds that the people have spent the time he was up there building an idolatrous golden calf to worship and is commanded to destroy 3,000 people. The law has been with the people for literally moments and 3,000 people are dead. This is a devouring fire. This is a glory of the Lord that could be terrifying. So that's Exodus 24. It's St. Paul, though, who gives us the definitive theological framework through which to interpret the transfiguration story. And he writes it in 2 Corinthians 3. It's short enough that I'll just read it to you. This is 2 Corinthians 3, 5 to 11. Our sufficiency, says Paul, is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses's face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. It's a lot. But remember how the transfiguration story ends. Moses and Elijah, glorious though they are, are brought to an end. 
they disappear. In the end, Jesus stands alone. To borrow Paul's language, Jesus, Jesus' glory is so much more glorious than Moses and Elijah that it's as if Moses and Elijah have no glory at all. They're gone. The gospel, the good news about God's saving work in Christ, is so glorious that it's as though the law and the prophets have no glory at all. Now, we know, of course, that this is only true by comparison. It's like a flashlight at noon. The law and the prophets do have glory. So much so, in fact, that when Moses came down the mountain carrying the tablets of the law, he was glowing. He was so glorious that the people couldn't even look at him. But remember that his glowing, that glory had the character of a devouring fire. 3,000 people were destroyed. Paul says that this ministry, a ministry carved in letters on stone, was a ministry of death and condemnation. It was a devouring fire to people like us who are prone to carve idols. It comes... And we die. The letter, Paul says, kills. Sinners like you and me need a more glorious ministry. What Paul calls a ministry of righteousness, a ministry of the spirit, a ministry of resurrection. A ministry that he says will never come to an end. The letter kills, but... The Spirit gives life. And this makes Peter's error clear. He wants to keep these ministries together as equals, three dwellings, all the same. But he didn't know what he was saying. A hockey mask on the face of a goalie is a wonderful thing, it protects, it saves. An ice cream truck on a hot summer afternoon is wonderful. It refreshes. It brings joy. But out of place, everything changes. Out of place, a hockey mask and an ice cream truck, like on a deserted street in the middle of the night, become terrifying. And Peter is taking Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, good and wonderful things in their place and putting them out of place. Peter is elevating the law and the prophets, desiring to put them on equal footing with God's own son, the gospel. But that won't work. The law out of place is like a hockey mask or an ice cream truck in the middle of the night. It's terrifying. Without the surpassing glory of the gospel to overcome it, it is to be feared. The letter kills. When we succumb to thinking that our obedience to the law might be a route to making us right with God, we will end up afraid, terrified of a God who will rightly judge us for our deeds. And we ultimately will end up just like those golden calf worshiping Israelites. 
dead in trespasses and sins. If Moses has just as much glory as Jesus, Jesus becomes nothing more than a helper who is designed to empower you to live up to the standards etched in those tablets that Moses carried. But that's bad news. That's a devouring fire. The ministry carved in letters on stone, says Paul, is ultimately one of condemnation and death, but only if it has the final word. And it does not, in fact, get the final word. God himself corrects Peter from the cloud, putting Jesus and Jesus alone in the highest place. Suddenly, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud, a voice said, This is my Son, the Beloved. With Him I am well pleased. Listen to Him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. The law, in its proper place, as a lesser glory, is indeed a glorious thing. It is the image of the holiness of Almighty God himself, a blueprint for his plan for the world, and the standard in the face of which we fall to our knees and call out for a savior. The law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah, point us to the Savior who has come. The one whose glory outshines every other glory. The one who has no peer, no equal. The one, Jesus Christ, who stands alone. When the law first came down from the mountain, 3,000 people died. We are all those idolatrous Israelites worshiping at altars of our own creation. As sinners, the law can only kill us. That's its proper place. The letter kills. But that's not glorious enough. We need a ministry of righteousness and resurrection. We need a surpassing glory. And we have one. The law can show us that we're dead in trespasses and sins, but it can't actually bring us back to life. But that's exactly what the gospel of Jesus Christ can and does do. The Spirit gives life. When the law first came down from the mountain, 3,000 people died. When Christ's resurrection was first preached by Peter in Acts 2, 3,000 people were saved. The gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, is a greater glory, a surpassing glory, a ministry of reconciliation and righteousness, one that will never end. When Peter and James and John were cowering in fear at the voice of God, thinking that it was a devouring fire, Jesus comforted them. Get up. Do not be afraid. 
Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the greater surpassing glory, we can also get up without fear. We can behold our God and not cower, but worship. He is glorious, both in his law and in his gospel. We are sinners, yes, but in Christ we are saved, resurrected, given new life, a life not of fear, but of faith, a life that will never end. And that, that free gift of Jesus Christ is a surpassing glory indeed. Thanks be to God. Amen.